So that's my prayer too as we come to the scriptures this morning. Take our Bibles and go with me to the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 12 as we turn there. Um, it is my desire. I, I don't mind. I, could, I, I love preaching to children, and I don't mind uh, thinking about children, you know, to have them even in the services. But there's an element where if you're trying to preach to age 3 to like 93, you're going to miss somebody somewhere. So the idea is that we love to have a targeted ministry for kids, uh, kids' ministry, where they're going to be preached to and challenged to uh, carefully in the Word, but it's going to be a spy theme. It's mission incredible for them. It's agents versus the detectives, or maybe you could say boys versus girls. Okay, so anyway, that's going to be happening for them, very much like a vacation Bible school. So tonight, I know Pastor Paul was trying to trick you into coming to his choir, but I, I'm, not, I'm saying if there's one time you can miss, and I'm saying he's like, no. <laughs> <laughs> Get thee behind me. No, 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 no. Um, I want to teach you. I do want to teach on evangelism. So even if you do miss that and happen to be in the choir section, they are, I think they're going to record it. We'll see what we do about recording that. Um, But we are going to be teaching on that and it will build. And so I want to do, how do you witness like Christ? How do you share the gospel? And I think these are so practical and helpful tips and tools. And so we'll do that on Sunday, but then Monday, Tuesday, as well as maybe even hit Wednesday. We'll see how we can finish that off. Um, But looking forward to that. Um, the teens will be meeting for the pre-service. I know they're going to be looking forward to their time, even tonight, having a great time with our team and being challenged. And uh, we'll be back in here for the Word of God nightly. Matthew chapter 12 and verse 38. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The Queen of the South will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Uh, This morning I want to speak to you a message on the subject of the God of mercy. The God of mercy. Uh, When I think about this, I think of the warning of God. I want to begin with a word of prayer and then we'll get into the message here this morning. Father, thank you that we can come before you and that we can hear your word. Lord, how you use the foolishness of preaching to bring men and women to repentance. Lord, it's amazing how you can do that in our hearts. I pray, Father, right now for not just in this service, but I pray for the kids' ministry right now, that you would bless them, that you would work in the hearts and lives of children, that they would understand the gospel and they would respond uh, through genuine repentance and faith. And I pray, Father, for adults. Lord, I realize not everyone who comes to church and comes to a, a service like this would be a true Christian. And so, God, I pray that you would work in hearts and lives, drawing lost to yourself, but, Lord, also uh, challenging believers, that believers would grow in their spiritual life. So, God, speak to each one of us. Lord, what good would it be if, you, if, you, if we hear the word, in a sense, but we don't really hear it? So, God, give us ears to hear. So, thank you, Father, for what you're going to do in our hearts and our lives. Please, dear God, empower me now and use this time. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. When I say the date, April 15th, what comes to your mind? Man, you guys are a bunch of downers. I wasn't thinking about taxes at all. No. I think most Americans do think April 15th, and you think naturally, you think tax day in a sense. But actually, on that date, historically, a little over 100 years ago, something happened that you could say rocked our world. I mean, it caused a major stir throughout the whole world. It was April the 14th. In the evening, late in the evening, on April the 14th of 1912, the greatest passenger cruise liner, the Titanic, hit an iceberg. It was right around 11.40 in the evening, and it took about two hours and 40 minutes later where it sank, really early mornings of April the 15th, the Titanic sank, killing right around 1,500 people. 
It was a major, major world news at the time. Everyone heard about it. I mean, it spread really fast in, in the year of 1912. And yet, when you think about the Titanic, I don't know if you've ever done much of a study. It's interesting because there's so many things on the Titanic now. I mean, you can watch documentaries. You can see movies. Multiple movies were, have been done on the Titanic. Um, um, there's conspiracy theories about the Titanic. There's all kinds of stuff that you can kind of get involved in, in, in a sense, in, in understanding. But the Titanic was a huge ship. I mean, at the time, it was 882 and a half feet long, almost 900 feet long. Now, you think about the football field, you know, right around 300 feet end zone to end zone, in a sense, and that's, like, that's pretty radical to go, whoa, this is almost like two and a half, three times of a full-size football field. This is, this is really big, but not just in its length. I mean, it was... It was right around 100 feet wide, 92 and a half feet wide, and it stretched from the base to the top of the stacks 175 feet. That's a massive ship. Actually, at full capacity, weighed 52,000 tons and carried about 2,224 people on its maiden voyage. You could say like a floating little city, maybe you could say, a little, maybe a little city. But you, you can imagine the size of that. And then the beauty was outstanding. The beauty, um, it had a swimming pool on the ship. Now I know no one, no one even looked at me and went, you know. Like, but actually in 1912, that would have been amazing. I mean, in our modern day, we have wave pools. You know, we got lazy rivers and zip lines and, you know, golf you know, ranges and stuff. I mean, there's all kinds of stuff now. But back then, a swimming pool it had four elevators had a dining saloon in it, actually had even parlor suites. You could get a parlor suite back in that day, and that parlor suite would cost you, cost you $4,350. Now, for some of you are going, like, whoa, like, that's a lot of money. That's back then. If you consider our modern day, it would be right around $120,000 for a parlor suite, okay? Now you're like, you know, some of you still might like, eh, you know, but not me. Okay. <laughs> That's a lot of money. Actually, because it was so large, some even did seem to say this. The ship was so large that God himself couldn't even destroy that ship. Well, you better be careful what you say. But the other side of it, if you look at historically who really said that, you kind of come to a little bit of a problem because who did say that? But that was the mentality. It really was the mentality. I mean, it's so massive. I mean, what could even sink this style of ship? That's impossible. And actually, you could say this. The ship did not have to go down that day. It didn't have to go down. It received six different warnings that day, but failed to heed the warnings. The last warning came, and the radio operator replied back. He said, shut up, shut up, I'm working. You could say this, just as the Titanic had warnings, so we also too have warnings. God, the God of mercy, which again, he doesn't, we don't deserve the warnings, but in his mercy, he does send warnings. And God in his mercy, he warns mankind of judgment to come. I guess the question is this morning is this, will you heed the warning? As we begin to look at this passage of Scripture, it's interesting because we go to verse 38 of chapter 12 of Matthew here, and it says this, that then some of the scribes and the Pharisees answered him saying, teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. Now, in one sense, you go, well, what's wrong with that kind of question? I mean, that's a good question. And I mean, if, if he really is who he says he is, we kind of need to make sure we know that. You don't want to just, you know, give your life to some person, you know, unless it's really Messiah. And there's an element of going, you know, that's a good question. And can I also say this to you? God in his kindness, historically and biblically, in his kindness, gives signs. Did you know that? I mean, as you begin to consider signs and even wonders of the past, amazing what God has done to actually show himself who he really is, to make it very, very clear, Moses got a sign in the desert, you know what I'm saying? I mean, you kind of work through and you see how God can show that to certain people. He actually showed the signs and wonders all throughout Egypt to be very, very clear for the Egyptians to see it and for Israel, you could say, the people of God to see it, the Jews. As you begin to consider even historically, I don't know if you've ever been to Hawaii before. How many of you have ever been to Hawaii? Anyone been to Hawaii? Okay, so numbers of you here. Um, the big island, on the big island, um, it's interesting to, to kind of know historically how the Hawaiian islands uh, were evangelized. 
Actually, back many years ago, there was a great king, King Kamehameha. And he's huge. I don't know if you ever see the statues of him. He, he was a big, big man. And actually, he unified the islands. Now, you know how he did that. Through conquering, I mean, slaughtering people, and then unified the islands. And so, therefore, you have this king. And yet, even all this pagan idolatry that was going on consistently, finally, there were, there were some people that said, this cannot be the way it should be. I mean, there was, there was not just uh, sacrificing going on, but there was even human sacrificing. There was all kinds of pagan idolatry. In the process, though, some began to pray, not knowing who to really pray to, but in the process, one seemed to have a vision or a dream. Actually, his dream was interesting because the dream was, was and he told people, he said, you know what, I've had this dream, and we are going to know the answer. Uh, they will come, and they will land here at this rock, at this spot, and they will tell us the truth. And just months later, missionaries on a ship land at that very spot. They get out. They begin to proclaim the gospel consistently. Actually, so many people came to Christ in the Hawaiian Islands. At one point in time, even the queen defied Pele, the goddess of fire, you know, over there to basically say, if you're really the true God, then kill me now, but I defy you in the name of Christ. There were so many people being converted on the Hawaiian Islands. At one time, historically, the largest evangelical gospel kind of preaching, teaching church in the world was located on the big island of Hawaii. Isn't that interesting? Because if you go there today, you wouldn't really know. But I say this because God in His kindness does send warnings. And that is kind, isn't it? Neighbor's house, if it caught fire and you, you saw that, you, you, you would, and you realize that people are moving but real slow inside, they don't know that it's on fire, you would run over and start probably banging on the door, hopefully, and, and they, they might even come and say, why are you yelling? What's your problem? And you're like, no, 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 your house is on fire, get out. That would be kind, and actually, if they get out and, and sure enough, it gets engulfed in flames, they would come back and they would, they would be with tears hugging you and saying, thank you, you saved my life. So the reality is to warn someone would be merciful and kind. And this is God. He is a kind and merciful Savior. It's His Son, Jesus, who is the Savior of the world. And yet you see this and they're asking for a sign. But I don't know if you've really considered the context of this, because at first glance you might say, why is he being so mean to these people that are asking for a sign? Hey, teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. Well, it's kind of because he keeps doing all these signs. At this point in time in history, I mean, he's doing so many signs. Look at chapter 11. Go Look at chapter 11 for a second. Chapter 11, in verse 2. It says, now when John heard in prison about the deeds of, of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and he said to him, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? Now that just tells me that actually encourages my faith because for him to say this, I mean, he's baptized Messiah and, and why is he now thinking that and saying those things? But the truth is, is, you know, he's in prison. Is it supposed to happen this way? And so there's a struggle that he seems, I mean, are you really the Christ or, or should we look for someone else? And then verse 4, and Jesus answered them. He said, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed from cleansed, and the dead or the deaf hear and the dead are raised up and the poor even have good news preached to them. And blessed is he or blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Go tell him what I'm doing. He'll clearly know I'm the Christ. You know, you, you think that's not just the only time. I mean, Jesus constantly did so many miracles. Actually, look at, look at verse 20 of the same chapter. Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done. So he did a bunch of works in these cities, the amazing miracles he was doing. And why did, they, why did he rebuke them in a sense? Because it says they did not repent. What is repentance? Repentance, in one sense, you could say, is a change of mind that leads to a whole change of life. It's not just to change your mind, but it actually leads to a whole change of life. Or you could say this, it's like if you're headed one direction, and let's say because of our sin and the wage of sin being death, actually the reality is of us all, we're born sinners and we're on our way, in a sense, you could say to hell naturally, but then God in His kindness provides the way, a Messiah, and you begin to realize this, and you go, I don't want my sin, but I want Christ to save me. It's a 180, it's a turning from your sin to the Messiah. 
If you say, well, I'm just going to turn from my sin because it's bad, but you're not turning to Messiah, you're not being rescued. Or if you say, well, Jesus, rescue me from some of my sins, but some of these I really, really like. <laughs> no, it didn't work that way. And so reality is genuine repentance. He's, he's saying these people are hearing and they're seeing the works, but they're not repenting. It doesn't affect them. They're just like, wow, look at that. He raises people from the dead. That's pretty crazy. Go further. Verse 21, woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works had been done in you, had been done in Tyre and Sidon, then they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it'll be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, you, will you be exalted to heaven? I mean, you will be brought down to Hades or to hell. For if the mighty works had been done in you, had been done in Sodom, it would have, been remained, or would have remained until this day. But I tell you that, that it will be more tolerable in the day of judgment than for the land of Sodom than for you. Are you catching this? Miracle after miracle after miracle he's doing, and he's preaching the message, repent and believe the gospel. I mean, it's just so, it's so clear and so simple, you could say. But look at chapter 12. In chapter 12, we see, actually in verse 9, that he went on from there, and he entered their synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. So you can imagine a man there with his withered hand, and they asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? And why they ask him this? Notice the next phrase. So that they might accuse him. They had their own man-made rules about the Sabbath. This is the very Messiah. This is God in human flesh. And they're trying to dupe him. They're trying to trick him. He created your mind, your, your body, he created the world. You can't trick Jesus. Okay? But here they do this to accuse him. And he said to them, Which one of you has a sheep, and if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? I mean, hello? And the whole crowd, in a sense, goes, Well, that's exactly what we would do. Or, How much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out and was restored healthy like the other. But the Pharisees, they went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. Now you're watching, I mean, to think that they're, they're confronting him in a synagogue, so kind of a place of, in a sense, worship. And then you can imagine with him doing this. And here's this man, and he brings him up in front, and he's got this man, you know, he's got this regular arm, and he's got this little withered hand, you know, the withered arm. And, and um, is it lawful or not, you know? And then finally Jesus obviously says, it is lawful. And he says, stretch out your hand. And before everybody, you're watching this guy's hand go, and you can imagine his face. I mean, his whole life. And all of a sudden he's like, I mean, how excited he would have been. Like, whoa! And everyone's eyes would have just lit up within the service. And I mean, no one's falling asleep in that message. Are you kidding me? You know? It's like, whoa, look what just happened. And instead of them praising God, the Pharisees and the scribes, they go out and they conspire against him how to destroy him. We're going to kill him. We want him dead. Actually, in verse 15, Jesus, aware of this, he withdrew from there, and many followed him, and he healed them all. Isn't that crazy? He is a miracle worker of miracle workers. Look at verse 22. Then a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him. So that the man spoke and saw, and the people were amazed and said, can this be the son of David? That's the, that is reference to Messiah. Could this be? This is Messiah. But the Pharisees heard it, and they said, it is only by Beelzebul, or Beelzebub, the idea is Satan, the prince of demons, that he, this man cast out demons. I mean, this, is, this isn't of God. This is demonic. So Jesus says, really? He kind of goes on to say, well, then if... I do it through demon power, then how do your people do it? You want to go that route? Okay. I mean, they can't say anything. 
So what happens is in verse 38, when you hit verse 38, then some of the scribes and the Pharisees answered saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. I mean, every bit of this is sarcasm. They don't want any sign. They, already, they want him dead. So the point is when they even call him teacher or good master, I mean, that's sarcasm. They don't think he's a good teacher or a good master. They've rejected him. Teacher, show us a sign. So you see Jesus' response. In other words, you could say this. If you're taking any kind of notes, number one, this confrontation begins with a sinful request. Or maybe I would just call it a stupid request, okay? Sinful request, stupid request, either way. I mean, think about this for a minute. Show us a sign. We want proof, please. Okay, wait a second. I mean, if you're Messiah, give us proof. Jesus, he does give you proof. Hello? He heals the sick. He makes the blind see. He walks on water. He calms the storms with his own voice. He casts out demons. He feeds 5,000. And if you include women and children, that's fifteen to 20,000 people with five loaves and two fishes. And he raises the dead and you want proof. What are you talking about? And the truth is, when we consider even the idea of even, even proof, it, may, it reminds me of the power of Scripture. And I say that because remember in Luke 16, where Jesus spoke of the rich man and Lazarus, in the end, what happens? These two men die. The rich man dies, and he's in hell. Lazarus enters the presence of God, but the rich man in hell begins to speak. And what does he say? Please send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger to come back and touch my tongue. I'm in torments. He just, I mean, please, mercifully, just give me some form of relief. He doesn't say, get me out of here. He doesn't say, give me a glass of water. Just the tip of your finger touching my tongue. Uh, please. No, it can't happen that way. Doesn't once, once you go where you go, when you die, you are there for all eternity. Well, then please send, send Lazarus back from the dead to go warn my brothers because I don't want them going to this place. I mean, if, they, if he goes back from the dead, they'll, re, they'll repent. And what is the response? No, even if I send him from the dead, the truth is they have actually Moses or the law and the prophets. They have the Old Testament They have the scriptures. If they don't hear that, then they won't repent even someone coming back from the dead. Now, that's hard for us sometimes to believe. Whoa, 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 wait. Wait, You're telling me that the scripture is more powerful than a, a, a person coming back from the dead and speaking? And I would say to you, yes, Jesus tells us this. And the truth is, Jesus did raise people from the... He raised a literal Lazarus from the dead. And what do they want to do? They wanted him dead again. And Jesus rose from the dead. And what do they want? They want him dead again. You understand what I'm saying here simply is this, that, that they want a sign, and a sign is a symbol of unbelief. And can I just tell you, you have a sign. You have all the proof of Scripture. You have all the realities of history that point you to Messiah. And so in one sense, show me a sign. Are you kidding me? You have the Scriptures. Now repent and believe the Gospel. That's what you need. But they're asking for a sign. This confrontation begins with a sinful request. But number two, you could say Jesus responds with a scathing rebuke. And his rebuke is pretty interesting because as he rebukes him. Notice he says in verse 39, but he answered them, he said, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except, except the sign of the prophet Jonah. He pulls them back to Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. What? Jonah? And in one sense, you could say, what does he tell him to do? He, he responds with a scathing rebuke. You have proof. Go back and look at Jonah, and he'll show you what's getting ready to happen. Now, wait a second. Jonah? Do you guys remember the story of Jonah? Some of you guys are a little bit more reminded of it today coming in, you know, to, to church. You're like, it's rainy, what's going on? You know, you're kind of freaking out maybe. And um, so the sign of the prophet Jonah, well, remember Jonah was told 
where he was to go to Nineveh and to preach to that great city. Remember that was told, and it's a very short book. It's actually a minor prophet, not because he wasn't worth saying anything. It just means he spoke less, and so he's considered a minor prophet, not like the major prophets who spoke a lot. And so here he is. Jonah, though, he was told to go to Nineveh. Instead of going about 500 miles north, um, east, he goes 500 miles southwest. I'm not talking about the airlines. He goes southwest. He gets on a boat and he pays the fare. He even tells them what he's doing. I'm running from God. And you're a pagan and you're taking the money. You're like, I don't care. Get on, give me your money. Get on the boat. Next. You know. In the midst of this, what does God do? God sends a storm. You see, Jonah is not about a whale. Jonah is actually about a big God who's all in the details. But God sends a storm, a raging storm. They all think they're going to die. So what do they do? They start doing They start going, ah, and, and they start throwing things overboard because this is a, such a bad storm, and this is their livelihood. This is the whole way they make money, but they're throwing everything overboard because they just want to survive. And yet in the midst of this, they, they, you know, they're telling everyone, everyone's like praying to their gods, you know, and, and it's like an ecumenical prayer meeting, and it's going nowhere, you know. And, it's like, and, then they, and then they see this guy, what are you doing? Wake up, you sleeper. What are you doing? Do you ever remember? Do you remember another prophet that fell asleep in a boat? What was his name? Oh yeah, Jesus, the Sunday school answer. Yeah, Jesus. And yet Jesus didn't fall asleep in the boat because he was exhausted uh, running from God. He was exhausted because he was doing God's will. But here's a prophet who is exhausted from running from God. He's in the boat, raging storm, and they're telling him, don't you care? And he says, well, I'll tell you the problem. The problem is actually me. And then he's like, if you would just pick me up and throw me overboard, your problems would stop because I'm the problem. Now, again, think how stupid that is. If you would pick me up and throw me overboard, if you're the problem, go jump. Are you kidding me? But their mentality towards suicide was so against any of that. No, you pick me up and throw me over. And they tried everything else still until finally they start praying to God. God, I wouldn't even know you, but we're, please don't, don't, don't let this be innocent blood. And they throw him overboard. And then the moment he hits the water and he starts to go down, what happens? The whole storm just stops. Raging storm stops? I mean, it freaked everyone out. Actually, that boat at that point saw a great awakening. I mean, at that point, they began to pray to the one true God who they'd heard about through this guy with very little revelation. They prayed to the one true God. They began to even sacrifice to him and pay vows to him. I mean, talk about an amazing miracle. Meanwhile, here's Jonah going down, 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 and then God prepares a great fish to swallow him and spit him up. Now, some of you are like, Jeremy, you really believe that? You know, it's, yeah, actually, that's why it's kind of funny. A couple years ago, I mean, historically, this old guy got swallowed and spit up pretty fast, you know? And so here's this guy who gets swallowed by a big fish, and it's God-ordained and appointed. And you can imagine, could you imagine that? I mean, you think you're going to drown, but instead, all of a sudden, something kind of starts to come at you and engulfs you, you know? And all of a sudden, you're in the mouth, and then you're starting to be swallowed. I mean, how does that work? Working your way to the stomach region? Are you kidding me? And how big was that region? Was it big enough for him to sit up? I mean, at the point in time, was it just big enough for, like, his head having enough to breathe, in a sense? But you can imagine the stench of the stomach acids. I mean, that's where he is. And am I dead? I mean, the truth is, am I in hell? Well, there's no flames, and I'm definitely not heaven. You know, I mean, ah, I mean, all this. And then he begins to cry out to God. And the Scripture tells us, he cries out to God, and he says, listen, I will pay my vows, and I will do what you called me to do. So God, what does he do then? He commands the fish to spit him out. Blah! Sorry, some of you are like, oh no. But imagine that journey. I mean, you're, oh, I mean, being forced out by all this. And then all of a sudden, it's like projectile vomiting, too, because he lands like on the, he lands on dry land, and now he's told to go. I'm telling you, go to Nineveh and preach what I tell you to preach. And he says, yes, sir, I'm going. And he probably never went near any water ever again the rest of his life, you know? But man, he, I mean, then he goes and he preaches like an eight word long message, like, you know, 40 days and Nineveh will be destroyed or overthrown. I mean, he stinks really bad. He looks bad. 
He's bleached his hair. Did he have hair at that point in time? I mean, everything about this, and yet even, it's amazing culturally the things that led up to even that. And now here's this prophet speaking a very simple message. And again, the people of Nineveh with very, very little revelation, what do they do? They respond to the message. They repent. They humble themselves. They cry out to God, dear God, the God of mercy. They put on sackcloth and ashes, even from the king to the, to the people. It seemed to start off with the people. The king hears it, and then he declares it to all the people. Put on sackcloth. Who knows? And they, they were known for their violence. Remember, the people of Nineveh were so vile. I mean, they, they, they would come in and not just conquer in their violence, but they would utterly slaughter people, cutting off heads. They would impale people. They would stick the bodies around the, around the cities and light them up. Um, and then they would take even skinning the bodies, filleting them, throwing the skins over the city to walls to say, if you mess with us, this is what we'll do to you. They would kill pregnant women with large knives, gashing the baby, killing the mother, ripping them open. I mean, it's just a vile, vile. But they turned from their violence to the one true God. And God, he heard them He saved them. An amazing, the greatest revival of all time in one short amount of time, you could say, right there. Um, that's their sign. Three days and three nights in the belly of a great fish. And he's referring to this, watch what he says in verse 39. But no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah, verse 40. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Whoa, whoa. That was to be picturesque or point us? Jesus was referring back to that? that that's, that's Jesus in the resurrection? That's pretty crazy, isn't it? If you notice all throughout the scriptures, you keep seeing glimpses of, of types and symbolisms. But this is very clear that Jesus himself says, no, just like he was three days and three nights, that's me. Now, for, don't get hung up, okay, too, because some of you are like three days and three nights, and you're exactly, you know, okay, if that's the case, is it Friday? No, it's Thursday. No, no, it's Wednesday. No, it's Friday. Thursday. Wait, wow! You know, you're thinking of when Jesus, you know, was, you know, then, then, then he rose on a Sunday. We all kind of agree with that one, you know. And the truth is, I will say, their culture is different than ours. I mean, even, them, even from the very beginning of Genesis, you know, the evening and the morning were the first day. We don't talk like that. What are you talking about? We don't look at the evening as, as the day. I mean, you go, to, you go over to Israel and you realize Shabbat, what is it? It begins at sundown, you know? It's like on the Friday, in a sense. But that's the, that's the beginning of their... It's just different, okay? And so sometimes we even say culturally stuff about days and nights, too. I might, I, I was, we're, in, we're in Philly area, or maybe you could say PA, um, in, in the fall, and we took a day and we went to, to, to New York City. Now, what does that mean? Does it mean I was there for 24 hours during the whole day? It could mean that. Does it mean I went there for the afternoon and spent a couple hours? It could mean that. And so we say and we speak this way, and that's kind of culturally how they would say a day and a night meant really any part of a day. So I, I just kind of, I would kind of pull you back, and I, I feel like I can clearly say I think it really can, will show you that I think it happened on a Friday, you know, where he, where he dies on the cross. But again, people differ with that. And I would simply say, don't get caught up in the sense that this is clearly what happened. He rose. That's the whole point. And it's pointing you back to, to Jonah. Has this happened to Jonah? Now look at this. Some even say Jonah maybe, may, some even scholars would say they, maybe Jonah really did die at that point in time and he raised him from the dead and spit it out. I mean, it, we, we don't know in a sense. But just like Jesus, three days and three nights in a sense is in the heart of the earth. Now he will raise. That's your sign. The resurrection is the sign you need to realize that Jesus wasn't doing this, didn't, wasn't raising, in a sense, for the sake of himself. No, he, he was doing this to, to, to declare us righteous, that we could be saved. This is all about Messiah. Notice even further, the men of Nineveh will rise up in the judgment. Well, how will they do this if Nineveh wasn't real, if it was just a fable? The whole point is this, these are real people and they'll rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For it says that they repented at the preaching of Jonah and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. So you're seeing this. Jesus says, look at Jonah. I mean, then learn from the Ninevites. I mean, how much revelation did they have? 
how much revelation do you have? Like, what's your excuse? We have the completed scripture so readily available. I mean, some of you are following on with your app. You're like a click away from hearing the gospel. We have so much revelation. And then he then says to this, to the, to the kind of conclusion of this, the queen of the south, who is she? She's the queen of Sheba. She's the one who went and visited Solomon, remember? It says, and she will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. She was so far away, and that culture at the time would have been like the ends of the earth, and she's making her way. She hears of the wisdom of Solomon, and she wants to know and remember how she does this. I mean, this would be a, 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 like an arduous journey. It's such, such a difficult journey that you could die on the journey. But yet she's making her way there. She's got all these goods to deliver to Solomon. And Solomon has no need of any of her goods. Solomon is so wealthy. And yet with, with all of this, his kingdom was so astonishing. And she's starting to see this. She's like, comes there and is like, whoa, whoa. And she's, she's heard of his wisdom. Let me ask you some questions. I mean, she's the queen of her nation. I mean, what kind of questions would you have? You know, I know questions about commerce, questions about, you know, taxing or this and this and this. I mean, there's so many questions. How did, you, how did you do this? What would I do here? And she's asked, and he's answering every bit of her questions. And at this point, do you think she maybe even said, hey, what's that amazing structure right there? It's called the temple. Let me tell you about the God we worship. Let me tell you about the God who made the world. Let me tell you about the sacrifices we do. And let me also tell you about the future sacrifice, the once for all one who will come. If she rises up in the south, she would have heard and responded. She goes away as a believer. That's amazing. And yet when you look at this, it's, to me, what's even more kind of simple and amazing is she says that she came all this way to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And now, wait a second. And, 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 you, and you and I, what do we do? We pat ourselves on the back. I, I drove 20 miles today to get to church. And at one point, it was kind of cold, so I put on my heater. And then it got a little bit, you know, too hot. And then I put on the AC. And I readjusted my chair. This would have been a month, months of journey. So we look at this and to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And then notice the last phrase. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. You think of the greatest king in all the earth, but there's something great. There's a greater king that's right there in front of them as he's speaking to them. This is king of kings and lord of lords. It's Messiah. He's right there. And not just he's the greatest king, but actually if you back up, something greater than Jonah's here. That means he's the greatest prophet. He's the greatest prophet and king. And if you back your way up all the way to verse 6 of the same chapter, he says, I tell you something greater than the temple is here. That means he's the greatest priest. He's the greatest sacrifice, prophet, priest, king. This is Messiah. Do you know him? And do you worship him? Do you pursue him? Do you go to great lengths just to, just to listen to Christ and to know him more? Do you, do, you, do you love him more than silver or gold because only you can satisfy Except, uh the beach is nice. My house is nice. Are you catching this a little bit? We're kind of like, whoa. 
So it's like, look at Jonah, learn from the Ninevites, listen to the Queen of the South. I mean, here's Jesus, the greatest prophet, priest, king, and sacrifice. And so in one sense, this is a scathing rebuke. You have proof. You want proof? You have proof. So it begins with this, this, this sinful request. It, it continues on with a scathing rebuke. And I think at the end, we just kind of say, well, then what happens? Now it requires a serious response. How will we respond to what we just heard? How will they respond to what they've just heard? Because, because if they humble themselves... And they really hear this and they realize their sinful condition. Now consider your sin for a minute. We are born sinners. Did you know that? And if you don't understand that, you've never had children. (laughs) Or you've never worked in a church nursery with a real long-winded preacher. Because you'll learn quickly that kids are born bad. You know, who taught them that, you know? You don't have to teach them how to lie, how to be selfish. And so then you begin to consider as we grow up, we commit sins, we break God's laws, and it's not funny before God. God in His kindness actually has standards and, and, and rules. We even have His moral laws of His Ten Commandments, and we, you try to really follow them, and you realize how quickly we break them. We can't meet up. And yet the problem is because we can't meet up, how are we going to satisfy God's wrath on us because the payment of our sin is even death? We need to be rescued. We need the perfect priest. We need the perfect go-between between us and God, that perfect sacrifice. We need the perfect human sacrifice for the human. Who's that? Except Christ. He's the one. So there's a point when a sinner begins to realize they can't save themselves and they need the Messiah. What do they do? They reject the world's wisdom for God's wisdom. The world says, nah, come on. Or maybe just wait till later. But as a true, someone who's God is working their heart, you say, I don't, it's, it's not about the world's wisdom. I don't care what the world says. You know, I reject it because I reject it for God's wisdom because God tells me truth. Actually, they repent of their sins, turning from sin to Messiah. And again, it's not a work that you do. God grants you the gift of repentance. But as he works in your heart, you're saying, I don't want my sin. I want him. I want Christ as my savior, as my king. You repent of your sins. You trust in Christ alone. And you look to Christ by faith. It's believing the gospel. It's not just having a mental belief. Actually, the demons believe in Jesus and they tremble. But actually, the Bible would tell you it's far beyond that. It's a believing upon Jesus. It's a trusting in Jesus to save you. That's what it really means to believe upon Jesus. That you're actually trusting him. And what happens? That sinner, by the grace of God, is turned into a saint. But consider the opposite. Consider the self-righteous who think they're saints. What do they do? They reject God's wisdom for the world's. Nah, I'm not that dumb. Worldwide flood. I mean, come on, you really think so? (laughs) Don't you know this thing is a big bang? I mean, everyone knows that. Big bang. And out pops a perfectly ordered universe. Have you ever blown up anything? Hello? But you reject, here they are rejecting God's wisdom for the world's wisdom. And instead of, instead of confessing and forsaking their sin, what happens? That means then you cover it over. If you don't come to Christ, you're covering your sins. You're trying to cover them over. You could try to be kinder or nicer. Well, I'll just do better. Well, that doesn't take away the sins you've done in the past. And the problem is in your pride, you're somehow looking some other way than God's Messiah. And so for you, you're covering your sins and you're not looking to God. You're looking to self. And because of this, really the self-righteous in the end show themselves to be sinners before God. Guilty sinners who are condemned to an eternal hell. You sin against an eternal God. There's an eternal punishment for your sin. That's why you need his eternal sacrifice. And that's why don't, you, don't reject the love of God through Christ. Because in the end, you'll receive the wrath of God. That's, what, that's how serious this is. It is like banging on a door saying, listen, your house is on fire, because it is. And aren't you thankful that someone told you about that? In conclusion, let me just say this. How, have you know, how many of you know the name Erwin Lutzer? Anyone know the name, Erwin Lutzer? Yeah, kind of a famous uh, preacher, um, still alive, a write, writer probably at this point. Uh, Erwin Lutzer said this. He said, when I became the pastor of the Moody Church in Chicago there in 1980, Uh, He became the pastor there. He says, I knew that one of the church rooms was named Harper Hall. 
in memory of the Scottish evangelist who was on a journey to the Moody Church, but he drowned when the Titanic sank in April of 1912. So here's this guy, John Harper, an evangelist, a Scottish evangelist. He's making his way to go preach. Actually, he says this, Harper's reputation as an evangelist was so well known that he was invited to speak at the Moody Church in 1910. He says, I have in my possession, uh, Lutzer says, a photocopy of a letter in his own handwriting which reads this. Uh, Harper said, I have been in Chicago for three months. God gave us a very precious and wonderful revival of continuous services each day and sometimes even more often. <laughs> what? We're going to do like three days of meetings? This is three months? Multiple times a day? Now, I'm not asking for that, Pastor, just so you know. I'm like, are you, whoa. <laughs> three months? He actually went on to say how he had been invited back to the Moody Church for another three months of meetings. That was his whole point. He's making his way over on the Titanic for, three, for a three-month meetings at the Moody Church. Wow. And so it was that John Harper, his sister, and his six-year-old daughter found themselves on this great ship, the, the Titanic. Where was his wife? His wife had actually previously died. So he had a six-year-old daughter. He had a sister with him. And they made their way over. Survivors later reported that as the Titanic began to sink, that Harper admonished people to be prepared to die. He actually made sure his sister and his daughter were in a lifeboat, even as he continued to share the gospel with whoever would listen. And when he found himself in the icy water with a life jacket floating near another man, Harper asked, Are you saved? And the man responds, No, I'm not. He's desperate as the man responds. And he says, Then believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, Harper shouted. One report actually says that Harper, knowing that he could not survive long in the icy waters, he took off his life jacket. He actually threw it to another person with the words, you need this more than I do. And moments later, Harper disappeared beneath the water. He drowned. Actually, it was four years later where they had a reunion of the Titanic. You can imagine how, how that would be such a, I mean, if you're, hey, we're going to have a reunion next year. You know, uh, you know, for one thing, for people to get together and then for even the trauma of all this. But it was four years later, they had this reunion of the survivors, and the man to whom Harper had witnessed told the story of his rescue and gave the testimony of his conversion recorded in a gospel track, and it's called, I Was John Harper's Last Convert. On his deathbed, he's, you could say, just, it's not about him. Are you saved? Then believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Are you catching this? Amen. This is Jesus. It is kindness and his love. And actually in Matthew eleven twenty eight, as we conclude, it's like he simply says this, come to me. He's calling lost people to come to him. All you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Come to me. I'll save you, he's saying. But you must repent. And you must believe the gospel. Trust in Christ and him alone. If you've never done that, can I just tell you, there's no mistake that you're here today. God in his kindness wants to save you. Humble yourself. Respond to this message. Will you do that? Let's pray. Dear God, Thank you for showing us a sign. God, you are a God of mercy, a God of grace, and you warn mankind, and judgment is coming. It is appointed unto man once to die, but after this, the judgment. Lord, we will all stand before you, whether saved or lost. But Lord, our concern right now is the lost, knowing that so many are without Christ and knowing that not everyone who comes to church is really a Christian. So God, I pray today that you would work in a very divine way of true salvation upon the hearts and lives of the hearers. Father, there would be some in this room who would realize their own sinfulness and know that you're the only way, the Savior. It wouldn't just be a mental faith or an emotional faith, 
but they would actually turn from their sins to Messiah. They would cry out to you to be saved. Thank you, God, for your kindness. It says, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord, they shall be saved. But you explained what that even means in an earlier verse. Speaking of that, if we would confess with our mouth the Lord Jesus, or Jesus is Lord, and we would believe in our heart that God has raised Him from the dead, we shall be saved. So God, I just pray that you would bring genuine conversion to a heart and a soul, that there would be true repentance and faith in Christ and Him alone today. With our heads still bowed and our eyes closed, I want to ask a couple questions, and I'll turn it over to Pastor, but I want to ask this question to you. Has there ever been a time in your life where you have rejected the world's wisdom for God's wisdom? And you actually repented of your sins, turning to Messiah and Him alone? Not partially, not kind of, sort of, but actually really turning to Christ as your Savior, as your Lord, as your King. And then you cried out to Him to be saved, as the Scripture says. You humbled yourself, and by faith you trusted in the Messiah. If that happened, then that means that God has saved you, and He has made you, the sinner, now into a saint. Now we know practically we're not there. We know that He's daily rescuing us from sin, but He's declared you righteous. That means all your past sins, present sins, and even future sins, He's paid for them at the cross, a death, burial, and resurrection. Jesus Christ did that. I wonder how many here today would say, Jeremy, that has happened to me. I have been born again. I have repented by the grace of God, trusted in Christ, and He has saved me. If that's true of you, could you slip your hand up as a testimony? Jeremy, that's happened to me. I have been saved. I kind of want to declare that. I want anyone, I'm not ashamed of that. Yeah, okay. And you can put your hands down. And, uh, what a, what, and I'm not. Are you ashamed of that? I'm not, you know. But maybe you're here today and you say, Jeremy, that hasn't happened to me yet. I mean, I, I was, the church last week, the pastor's testimony is as an assistant pastor, at the age of 27, he got saved. He fooled a lot of people for a long time. Self-deceived even. But maybe you're here today and you say, Jeremy, I've not been saved yet. I've never really repented yet. I know I need to. Would you remember me in prayer? And you just slip your hand up. I'd know to pray for you, Jeremy. Pray for me today. I won't point you out, but I'll pray for you. Jeremy, please pray for me. I don't think I'm saved yet. This does concern me. Would you just remember me in prayer? And if that is you, I'm looking around. I'm not necessarily seeing, but if that is you, can I, I see that. I appreciate that. Can I, can I encourage you in just a moment? Uh, we will have an opportunity. If you want to talk to someone even right away, and I would encourage you, don't push it off. If God is speaking to you now, then respond to him today. And we'll have an opportunity. Pastor will explain that in just a second here. How many also as believers would say, Jeremy, God has been speaking to my heart as a Christian about really pursuing Christ and even sharing the gospel? Jeremy, pray for me as God deals with my heart. And you just slip your hand up as God's dealing with you. Yeah, and I think that's God's doing that in our hearts today. Uh, I'm going to have our, my, just my wife just play through a simple hymn of invitation. As she's plays through, you do business with God right now. I'm going to have Pastor come and explain to us kind of how he does an opportunity invitation for some of you. We have trained counselors that are here that would love to help you.